0: And for everyone else, if you will turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 1, the end of chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2. If you're using one of our pew Bibles today, you can turn to page 1023. Um, if you do not have a copy, a personal copy of God's Word that you can read and understand, please feel free to take that Bible that's in the pew. It's not there just for posterity. It's there for you to use and to take with you, consider it our gift uh, to spread the word and to put it in your hands and hopefully in your heart. So, let's begin our study day in God's Word. We are continuing on in this series called Awakened based on how the Holy Spirit was inspiring the Apostle Paul to write these letters to a church in Corinth in ancient Greece, um, to help them have their eyes open, their ears open, their hearts open, ready to faithfully live for the Lord, even though this church, while it started out of good intentions and on good footing and foundation, had been distracted and lost its way. Paul is writing this letter out of love to them. And in the course of his action... There's some rebuke. There's some instruction. There's some details that bring about reconciliation, restoration, but it needs and and has a mandate for correcting wrong, correcting fault. And today we're going to look at what that looks like and how Paul handled the situation and then how the Holy Spirit used him to pass on this information of what he did, to say this is a, an example of of what godly correction looks like. And on, on Father's Day, many of us, our job is to provide loving kindness and correction and instruction. So I thought how timely that we would end up here on this day. It was not my intention, but this is where we ended up nonetheless. So in God's providence, we're going to spend time together looking at this. So would you stand with me and and let us honor God in the reading of His Word. The words will be on the screen behind me. We're going to be in the last two verses of chapter 1 and moving into the first four verses of chapter 2. And this is what the Holy Spirit says as He inspires the Apostle Paul to write. I call on God as a witness on my life that it was to spare you that I did not come to Corinth. I do not mean that we lord it over your faith but we are workers with you for your joy because you stand firm in your faith. In fact, I made up my mind about this. I would not come to you on another painful visit. For if I cause you pain, then who will cheer me other than the one being hurt by me? I wrote this very thing so that when I came, I wouldn't have pain from those who ought to give me joy, because I am confident about all of you that my joy will also be yours. For I wrote to you with many tears out of an extremely troubled and anguished heart not to cause you pain, but that you should know the abundant love I have for you. Let us pray. Lord God, today, I thank you for being a loving father who speaks to his children in their time of need and who shows us the right way. Even though the Bible says all have turned away and all of us on a path that we justify ourselves, but in the end ends in death. You step in and you bring reconciliation to us. You course correct us. So God, help us to see as we carry that ministry that you've given to us of reconciliation, what does it mean to help correct others? What does that part play in my life as a father, as a leader, as a as a coworker, as a friend, as a neighbor? Show us what that looks like, God, as bearers of your image, as carriers of your name, as people of faith in the Lord Jesus. And for his glory alone we do this, in Jesus' name, amen. may may be seated. So each time we come together and we spend time in the reading and study of the Word, we have a goal. We believe that when people come to a greater understanding of Scripture, it has a greater faithfulness in their life. It has a greater impact. They become transformed by it, by learning what it says and what it means and how it applies them, and then ultimately answering that question, what am I going to do about it, by faithfully trusting and the only way we can do that, to understand what it says and what it means and how it applies, you guys have heard me say this week in, week out, is by understanding who the author is, who the what the audience is, and what the aim is. Because throughout the Bible, in all 66 books, 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New Testament, uh, books that were written over a period of 1,500 years by 40 different authors in three different continents and three different languages, you're going to see different portraits. You're going to see different genres. You're going to see histories. You're going to see law. You're going to see poetry. You're going to see words of wisdom. You're going to see prophecy. You're going to see imagery and metaphors. You're going to see literal commands. You're going to see letters. You're going to see eyewitness accounts. You're going to hear about what's to come. You're going to see what has been. And you're going to know what is available now. And here we're looking at a letter. A letter of correspondence. Uh, out of a few that had been written between the Apostle Paul and this church in Corinth. And Paul is writing this letter, one of many he had written around A.D. 56, while he's about a thousand miles away in the city of Ephesus across the sea. But he had heard the accounts of what was happening in this church, that he had spent 18 months from the ground up helping to found and establish leaders and to teach them the Scripture and whenever they Paul was writing and 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 found in these churches, it wasn't just a Sunday hour visit. That was all that they got. They were day in, day out for eighteen months learning the Old Testament and how that showed and uh, brought forth the message of the Messiah. So Paul is a vested interest here, not because it makes him look bad, but because he knows God did a work to save people in Corinth and still has a work and a desire to save more in Corinth. And the job of the church is to be that instrument that proclaims, "This is who God is, this is what He has done, this is what He says, and now this is the choice that lays before you. And if the church is not clear in doing that, or is distracted from that, they're dislodged out of their purpose. And Paul wants to bring them back to that correction. In this first letter, he speaks about all these issues that have been going on. In the second letter, he's bringing back this, 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 uh, this focus on what true ministry in the Lord looks like. And he wants them to understand that when it ta- we speak about ministry and about what our role as the church is, is to be people that declare that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. That God did not leave us to our own devices to figure out things on our own, but God lovingly gave himself to us. Ministry without that message is just nothingness. It's just motions without anything tangible, without any foundation, without any good that actually changes and restores someone. It has to have God doing the work. And that true ministry, when it's done, it's going to have days of victory and days of suffering. Both and. That the church will be something that God builds up and not even the gates of hell will defeat it. That is true. But it does not mean there won't be days of suffering. But it also doesn't mean there won't be days of victory. It's going to have both. And then when we serve in Jesus' name, it's going to require ministering to very various needs. It's going to happen that, that we're going to have to be able to get down on people's level to communicate this message. That we are not going to be dependent on just to build it and they will come. We are going to have to go so that they will hear. We're going to have to serve so they will know that there is a people of love. There is a God who loves. And then as such, it's going to require leadership to be in place and to help lead the church. To even course correct them in their time of need. And here Paul is speaking about his role to help bring about correction in the church and, and what he did do and what he didn't do so that the church may understand and may hear what it looks like to, to be corrected in a way that is biblical, in a way that is God honoring and honoring of one another. Now, when you look at the scripture and ask, what does it reveal to us about the ministry In the area of correction, we need to understand a few things about correction. First of all, we need to understand that a ministry of correction, if we're going to have that, it means an awareness of truth. First of all, it's going to mean an awareness of truth. And I know know these are not the points that are on the screen. Um, These are just some highlights just to begin with. You cannot correct someone if you do not know truth. You cannot provide a correction if there is no source of truth. But God has not left us without truth. He has provided it to us. He has provided facts, historical truth. He has provided science. I'm not getting into theories, but actual science that has verifiable, repeatable, irrefutable truth. And He has provided us with biblical truth so that we shall know. And these things are not opposed to one another. They come together in a way that honors god and declares who he is see here's the thing you may be entitled to your own set of opinions but you are not entitled to your own set of facts facts are facts and facts help bring us and show us what is true And if we're ever going to provide correction, we can't do it on a theoretical, well, I think this is right, or I'm building on it, it feels right, or our culture in this moment makes it seem right, it must have a source of truth, or else it's just swaying back with the sands and waves of time. And we will have no sure foundation, but God has graciously given us truth. Secondly, if we're going to think about true ministry in the area of correction, we need to understand that a ministry of correction means awareness of our current course, of our current trajectory, of ourselves and of others around us when we look around and we can see if we have truth, we can look at where we're at and where we're going and say, is this lined up with this or is this totally off course? That's what truth provides for us. It helps us to take and evaluate where we are and is it really what is needed? Is it really what is timely? Third, a ministry of correction means doing what is necessary to reorient and realign oneself or others with truth. You see, the Scripture has been a provided way for the church collectively and for the individual to be effectively realigned with God's truth, reoriented. It is not meant to just be some tool for our encouragement, although it is very encouraging, or to entertain us, although there's great stories, or to enlighten us, there's great teaching, but it's meant to change our life because it's providing the truth that is necessary for us. And in a time where we just all want to go and do our own thing, our own way, this course corrects. Without the authority of the word of God, we have no source of truth. <sighs> and here in Second Corinthians, Paul is writing about a response to what has happened out of the letter from 1 Corinthians. There are people that heard the message and their heart was was pierced they'd seen that guy was doing a work of grace in their church and they were responding and there were others that were calling Paul a coward. They were saying, oh, "He doesn't mean that or he 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 doesn't want to serve us or he doesn't want to love us and he's just doing this to to build up his own name, his own ministry rather than to actually serve us." And Paul's response is one that is Firm, yet gospel-centered. It's serious, yet gracious. It's, it's pointed, yet it, it frees us in order to bring glory to the name of Christ. And here, as Paul is dealing with this heart-wrenching ordeal on his own, he writes to them. And he's saying, I'm, I'm going to call on God as my witness to who I am and what I've done. And think about the, that. When we say, I'm calling God as my witness don't let those words just pass over you like you know we see it and just kind of come so familiar when we see court tv where they used to, or old cases where they used to swear on the bible that kind of thing and we're just like oh, they're swearing on the bible kind of thing they tell the truth the whole truth nothing but the truth so help me god um but imagine i in an honest prayer am calling on god to be my witness right now of the things that i have done you better have your integrity intact if that's the case Because God has seen every detail, every intention, every motive, every action. He can review it all in one space without even a blink of an eye. And Paul is saying, as far as my part, this is what I have attempted to do when it comes to you Corinthians. That I have not done anything out of malice or out of my own agenda. And this letter I have written to you is not one that says, oh, I'm better than you. That's not it. Because a ministry of correction insists on integrity, insists on staying before God as the witness of our life. And Paul says, as my witness, I did this because I didn't want to hurt you anymore. I know you needed correction. I I know it and it guts me, it pains me that this is true. But what my actions are before you is a conscious clear before the Lord. That this wasn't meant to build myself up. You see, the ministry of correction, it first insists on integrity. I'll give you all of them. It insists on integrity. It is compelled by charity. It is held by humility and it tunes our trajectory. These are the points we're going to make today. But why integrity? Why is that necessary? Because Paul wasn't living this kind of eye spy life, looking in to see, alright, what are they going to mess up on today? I'm just looking for that one thing to rawr, jump on. We live in a world where it seems there are eyes that are always focused to find fault. Now, don't get me wrong. Whenever there is fault, when there is a need for correction... We as the church must be wise enough, bold enough, firm enough, loving enough, gracious enough, and truthful enough to speak to those faults, those vices. Paul did that. To not do so is actually cruel and unloving. It says that God has nothing for you. It says that God has no way to change your life. It says that God has given up and has no grace for the moment. We cannot be that way. But we cannot be also people that I know this has happened with people that have gone to church and I hate that this has happened. This has been the reality of some who have pain, who have faults, who have problems, who have hurt, who have struggles with the flesh, with the world, with the with the devil. They have struggles and they've come into a church and all of a sudden they've got the eye spy look and they've heard a strong and raspy, edgy, cut to the quick, critical voice and it has pushed them away. And what they heard is God has no room for you here. We've got to be careful how we come across and allow God To be the witness of what is on our hearts and minds. But here's the thing. If we are constantly those people who are critical and fault finding. If we are known as those who are habitually angry and harsh. If we rebuke others far more than we ever will praise them. Here's the plain fact. Even our moments when there is needed seriousness and correction. Even those will lose effect. Do we understand that? If all we are are the people that are critical and rebuking in every single turn, and there is never a moment of utter praise or or enjoyable or excellence in speech and and building up of one another, if all we ever hear, then even those moments where it is necessary, it's just going to be like people hearing you cry wolf. That's just them. They're just cranky Because that's what you've become known by and not a person of integrity that praises that which God has provided, that loves others in a way that God loves you. What we need to understand is the more seldom a person rebukes, the more effective when those moments of rebuke and correction come, when it must be launched. That shows love. It says, wow, I know that person. And I mean, they're not being ugly with me, but they really are caring and concerned enough to speak to me in this moment. I want to tell you, I am thankful for brothers and sisters who have been that for me in my life, here in this church and other places. They'll be the ones that love and said, man, we're so proud of you, we're so grateful, thank you for that message, I needed that. But then they'll come alongside me, Brother Jerome, and they're not complaining, they're like, did, did, you said this, did, did you mean that? Or what's going on? Just, are you, Did you ever think about this perspective? And, I'm, and I'll be honest, I didn't know, I didn't think about it. And yet, yeah, it hurt for the moment. But the timeliness of it, and knowing that they were not out to say, oh, that preacher never does anything good. I'm going to complain about him every day. I'm going to tell you, I love my family. I love them. My family that I grew up with. But I'll be honest, I got so used to having roasted preachers served over the Sunday morning table after church, I thought nothing good could ever be said about a preacher. Nothing good could ever be said about a church. Nothing good could ever be said about a fellow Christian. We need to keep in mind what this looks like. And the Bible tells us the eyes of the true Christian focuses on that which is noble, that which is excellent, that which is praiseworthy, that which is good. That's what Philippians 4 tells us. It says it sets our hearts and our minds on these things. Not playing the I spy game on what I can pounce on today, but what is good and building up of one another. And in those moments, to be so measured by God's truth and so humbled by love, I'm compelled that I would carry that to a brother or sister. Secondly, the ministry of correction not only insist on integrity of the person giving it; it is compelled by charity. It's compelled by love. The goal of correction is never merely to hurt someone. Sometimes it hurts. It gets it hurts being called wrong. Doesn't it? No one likes to be saying you're wrong. We'll fight and we'll be like, oh, those are fighting words. I'm ready to scrap right now. Let's do this. And I you loud, I can get louder. Nobody likes to be called wrong. I hate being called wrong. I hate being called up. I hate it when my kids are smarter than me on something. You heard one of my eldest laugh. The goal of the ministry of correction and when we're trying to lovingly instruct someone and reconcile them to what God's Word says and who He is, is never merely to inflict pain. It's never merely, merely to have that gratification of watching someone get their just desserts. You know what I'm talking about. You can get that little passive comment or maybe not passive, maybe it's overtly aggressive. You can call somebody out on their junk see the face turn and the, uh-oh, I've been caught moments. We like seeing that, don't we? It's low-hanging fruit that's very tempting to go for. I have to be careful with that as a parent because sometimes that's my whole thing. I just want to shake somebody just, just enough to get them to, to wince and feel pain over the moment. That's never the way God intended correction to be done. It is possible for us to hate the situation, but to love the person that's in it. It's possible biblically to hate sin and to love the sinner through it. That is what God did for us, so it is absolutely possible. And the correction that is compelled by love and displayed in Christian love, we got to understand this, that's actually the more effective route. I know a lot of people love good old fire and brimstone preachers, and I have known of quite a few good fire and brimstone preachers. But some people just like being hollered at. They like the old football coach mentality. Come on, get in there. Get your head in the game. Or you're going to burn. I know some that have done that out of just decent love, incredible love. But if all your knowledge of scripture is just yelling and chewing somebody out and it's not done out of goodwill and a heart compassion for another person. Let me tell you, after a while that loses its effectiveness too. But when you know that man, that person loves me, man, it, it, it gets you. I'm going to tell you something. I've told you about my grandparents before. Uh, you know, my, my grandfather's like five foot six, but he's a giant in my eyes, you know, that kind of thing. Um, and then there's my grandmother, Jessie May. I love Jessie May. She's with the Lord. I can't wait to see, see her again. But I'm going to tell you something. When Jessie May corrected you, she was not the switch grandma. I had the switch grandma too. Jessie May was that sit at the dinner table person with you, just lovingly continuing conversation, and she would share something with you. Man it didn't pack you. Because she knew when you're sitting down with the jet dinner table with Jesse Mate, that lady loved you. And her words made a difference. Her kindness would often lead me to different behavior in that household. I often acted different at my grandparents' house than I did at my own. Not because I was to go into the grandparents' house where I could get away with anything, oh no. Was, I don't know what happened there, but that was not the home. Well, some ways it was, I guess. There are some rules of grandparenting that just continue over the generations. But it's was kindness that led me to a change. And the Bible tells us that's the same way God does for us. Yes, there is the firm, truthful conviction and powerful declaration of his holiness, but the Bible tells us it is his kindness that leads us to repentance. It is the fact that we can look and say, God, I don't know why, I don't know how, I don't know what for, but the fact that You love me, that marks me. That changes me. That helps me see things newly. And I see that Your actions towards me were done out of love. You see, the ministry of correction insists on integrity. It is compelled by charity, but it is also held with humility. It is held by a nature of humility. Paul says, I have made up my mind about this fact. I would not come to you on another painful visit. Why? Because I love you. For if I cause you pain, then who will cheer me other than the one being hurt by me? I'm asking for us to have mutual joy when I'm just out there hurting you and I don't want to hurt you because I love you. And I wrote this thing so that when I came, I wouldn't have pain from those who ought to give me joy because I am confident all about, about all of you that my joy will also be yours. For I wrote to you with many tears out of an extremely troubled and anguished heart not to cause you pain, but that you should know the abundant love I have for you. Do you hear that? That is not a pride-filled heart there. That is not a haughty, authoritative, over-domineering heart there. That is a on-the-knees praying and writing and speaking a truth in love because He is humbled and wants to make sure they understand this, this, this direction they're going and the danger of it not because he's like ha, ha, I'm better than you but because he wants what's best for them. There's a great danger for us who are preachers and teachers and leaders and facilitators of 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 teaching God's word. There's all kinds of dangers out there but this is one of them that I think is is very easily disguised, very easily camouflaged, very easily deceiving and that is come to think that it is our sole duty to forcibly persuade others to think exactly as we do. To insist that if others do not agree with all, all that we hold dear, and if they do not see things exactly as we see them, if they do not act with the same level of composure as we do, then they must automatically and categorically in all things be wrong. There's a danger for us to try to say, I want to make a pale comparison of myself, to clone me. But here is the truth for those who are teachers, who are leaders, who are facilitators, who are preachers, who are fathers and mothers leading in homes, who are lead- helping in co-workers. Our job is not to clone ourselves. Our job is to be image bearers of the One who gave Himself up for us and to help others see that in their life as well. Anything else is a pale comparison. Anything else is a losing trajectory you see, our goal is to help encourage them to understand and know the truth, to want to independently grow and understand it for themselves and to be on mission with God for the purpose that God created them so they would be a part of the body. But not everybody is a hand, not everybody is a nose, not everybody is an ear, not everybody is an eye, not everybody is a mouth, but God has put us together for His way. And the goal is not uniformity, but unity. Uniformity says look, act, speak, talk, make complete robots. Unity says God does something incredible to take what is diverse and put it together to be one. And so our aim is never to be trying to make the individual extinct. But once again, to help them be those image bearers. And Paul says, I want you to know the, the abundant love I have for you. And he would go on to say, in the rest of this letter, because of the abundant love I have for you, this is the course that I hope you can see and know for yourselves. But it's going to present you with a choice. One that I cannot make for you. One that I cannot force upon you. But nevertheless, this is what God has been doing through the annals of time to bring about this hope, this redemption, this reconciliation. To bring about his correction. And He did it out of the heart of his holiness and integrity. He did it out of a heart that was compelled by love. He did it by being the most humble of servants. And what He has done, it tunes our trajectory. It changes the course that we're on. It transforms which way we were going when we see Him. And ultimately, when people see the integrity in the lives of believers, in the school place, in the workplace, wherever they may find themselves, when they see and hear a heart that is compelled by love, not out of hatred or hurt, and when they see a heart that is held by humility, not trying to point out everybody's wrong to make ourselves better than them, but to hold out what is best for the other, that kind of correction changes things. Because that was what we found in Jesus Christ through the Gospel. That though He was holy and just and awesome as God, He is that. He he saw the offense of sin. He did not leave us to our own devices, but He willingly gave Himself to us. He's the perfect image of what this ministry of correction looks like. It is not meant to be found alone in this old preacher. Some of you are like, you're not old. Sometimes I feel it though. Has seen perfectly in Jesus, and we must point people to him because if they're only looking at us, they will see a faulty failure at times. But when they see him in us, they'll see something new. They'll see the one that actually changes life and the one who corrects eternity. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, help this be seen in our homes. Help this be seen in our church. Help this be seen in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, in our schools. Wherever we find ourselves, Lord, help this be the heart. That our goal is not to say, I'm right, you're wrong. But our goal is to show that you are righteous and you can make others righteous. Let us be clear about that, Lord. In everything we do, in everything that we say, may we point others to you from those that are in our nearest mission fields of our homes, to those that are to the farthest, uttermost parts of the earth. Wherever you send us, help us follow and help us to carry you and bear your image well for your glory and your name alone. In Jesus' name, amen. This time, we close out the worship gathering. I must ask you to keep your heads bowed, your eyes closed. Each week, we have a time of response. There's always that moment when we're spending time in God's Word That's lots of things we've learned, lots of things to take in, but ultimately the question gets laid before us, what are we going to do about it? In light of who He is and what He's said and what He's done, what are we going to do about it? And it would be cruel of us to just kind of shuffle through everything and then not give you the moment to really take that in and pause and to ask God, what does this mean in my life, in my situation right now? Make no mistake, I believe in divine appointments. I believe in God's providence. And there's a reason that you are sitting where you're sitting right now. So however it is that God is leading you, whatever decision it is, please take the time to take heart and listen to what He has said. For some in this room, it could mean that God is saying, you are trying to live a life without me. Maybe you want to get near and in proximity to God, but actually with you're living without Him. He's just on the outer edge. and God is saying, you need to know Me. You need to place your trust in Me. You need salvation found in Me. And if that's you today, you can have that peace with God. You can have that salvation. The Bible tells us that, that when we... Admit that we are sinners in need of a Savior and we believe and trust in the Lord. When we confess with our lips and believe in our heart that Jesus is Lord, He will save us. And if that's you today, you can place your trust in God. If you need help in walking through those steps and following after that way, I'm going to be down here at the front and I would have no greater hope than to help you do that.